Hello, and thank you for joining us, everyone. I'm Essay Werke, Senior Policy Analyst at the Migration Policy Institute, and your moderator for today's webinar. Welcome to this timely session on supporting unaccompanied children in the U.S. communities where they live. Let's begin with a couple of housekeeping items. If you have any technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org or call the number that you see on the screen, 202-266-1929. We will have a Q&A at the end of our call. There will not be a voice Q&A, however, so please type any questions you may have into the Q&A box or email your questions to events at migrationpolicy.org. I wanna take a moment to highlight a few key resources from MPI, which are featured on this slide. You'll see that our webinar focuses on findings from a new report titled, Strengthening Services for Unaccompanied Children in US Communities. Both the report along with related commentaries can be found on our website at migrationpolicy.org. We also have a interactive tool on our website which shows data on unaccompanied children released to sponsors by state and county from FY14 to the present. And that's available on the next slide. You'll see an image of it as well as the link. Please note that the slide deck, which includes the links, will be available to you after the webinar, along with an audio recording of this session. Moving to the next slide, we have lined up for you six voices, including my own as your moderator. Two of my colleagues, Mark Greenberg and Stephanie Aredia, will provide opening marks in just a moment here. And later on, we'll invite a panel of speakers, Matt Haygood, Marcella Ruiz, and Kate Reen to share their experiences and lessons learned from supporting unaccompanied children. We're very excited to have our panelists here with us because they offer three different perspectives representing the national, state, and local programming for unaccompanied children. I will more formally introduce each of them just before they offer their remarks. For now, I am pleased to introduce our first two speakers, Mark Greenberg and Stephanie Aredia. Mark is the director of the Human Services Initiative and is a senior fellow at MPI. Prior to joining MPI in 2017, Mark worked at the Administration for Children and Families in the US Department of Health and Human Services, which many of you know, includes the Office of Refugee Resettlement and has responsibility for both the Unaccompanied Children's Program and the Refugee Resettlement Program. Earlier in his career, Mark also worked as the Executive Director of the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Equality in Public Policy and as the Executive Director of the Center for American Progress's Task Force on Poverty and the Director of Policy for CLASP, Center for Law and Social Policy. My colleague Stephanie is a research assistant with MPI's Human Services Initiative. And prior to joining MPI, 
She worked at CARE, the Capital Area Immigrants Rights Coalition, and as a legal assistant uh, providing legal services to detained immigrant children in the Washington DC area. She previously served as the citizen security intern for the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars Latin American Program and worked as a legal assistant at L&L Immigration Law, where she conducted casework for asylum seekers, principally from the Northern Triangle and Venezuela. Mark and Stephanie, thank you both for addressing our audience today. Mark, if I may begin with you, we've been hearing a lot about the news, uh, about unaccompanied children in the news. And I'm wondering if you could highlight for us some key points that we should keep in mind about what we're hearing uh, as we enter into this discussion. Mark? Thanks very much, S.A. Um, hi, everybody. We greatly appreciate your joining us for this webinar today. Our principal focus today concerns services after children are released from custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, ORR. But we wanted to start with some background about how the Unaccompanied Children Program works under usual conditions, what's been different this year, and some implications going forward. So to begin, under normal conditions, when unaccompanied children arrive at the border, they're apprehended by Customs and Border Protection. CBP is required to transfer them to ORR within 72 hours, absent exceptional circumstances. ORR then places children in one of the network of shelters and other facilities that are subject to both federal standards and state licensing requirements. And while children are in shelter, efforts are made to determine if they have a parent, relative, or other appropriate person with whom they can live while they're in the United States awaiting immigration proceedings. After they're released from federal custody, there's a limited set of federally funded post-release services. It's always a challenge for HHS to determine how many state licensed beds will be needed because there are large monthly and yearly fluctuations in numbers of arriving children. In the past, when numbers of arriving children went up unexpectedly, HHS in both the Obama and Trump administrations turned to what are referred to as influx facilities, which were typically much larger than standard shelters, on federal land, exempt from state regulation, but intended to have services comparable to standard shelters. Or our policies say that influx facilities should only be used for children 13 and over who speak English or Spanish, don't have special needs, are expected to be released to a sponsor within 30 days. Many things have been different this spring and summer for two principal reasons. First, the number of arriving children has been the largest in the history of the program. And if you see in the slide, you can see that March and April were actually the largest months on record. Numbers have been lower in May and June, but still larger than any months in the history of the program, except March and April. As a result, this year is on pace to have the largest total numbers in the history of the program by a substantial margin. And we can see that in the next slide. Um, you can see, again, this is reflecting numbers um, through June, estimated numbers, but clearly uh, um, it will be the largest in the history of the program. 
Second, the program didn't have enough state licensed bed capacity for arriving children. That would have happened in any case, given the number of arrivals, but the situation was made much more complicated because the Trump administration left the Biden administration with only about half the number of licensed beds that had been identified as needed for preparedness. Partly this was due to pandemic related difficulties, partly because the Trump administration largely relied on expelling unaccompanied children at the border last year, rather than building capacity to address the COVID related losses in available beds. Under these circumstances, children were detained for more than 72 hours in severely overcrowded CBP holding facilities because OR lacked bed space. And to deal with the situation, the administration created a new set of facilities called emergency intake sites. At one point, there were 14 of them, mainly in Texas and California, in a range of settings, including auditoriums, coliseums, warehouses, large tent facilities. These facilities weren't intended to provide the full set of services a standard shelter or an influx facility would provide, but rather to provide for health and safety and get children out of overcrowded CBP facilities. They weren't restricted to older children, English or Spanish speakers, children anticipated to be released within 30 days. While some of the facilities have received praise, others have been sharply criticized by staff and volunteers and others for multiple concerns, including inadequate living and sleeping conditions, bad food, lack of medical care, inadequate staffing, lack of case management, creating environments where children were sometimes spending long periods of time indoors with little to do, without contact, with case managers or having any information about their cases. HHS also took multiple steps to speed the process of releasing children to parents and other sponsors. A number of those steps were straightforward and uncontroversial. Others have raised concerns about shortcuts that may increase risks to children. At its peak, HHS had nearly 23,000 children in custody, most in emergency intake sites. Today, the number of children is down to around 14,000 with probably roughly 8,000 or more in licensed facilities. The number of arriving children is still high. It's averaging over 400 children a day, but the numbers in ORR custody are staying relatively constant because ORR is continuing to release children at a high rate. So going forward, I'd highlight four channels. The first is the need to improve conditions in the remaining emergency intake sites and develop higher standards that can be effectively monitored and enforced in the future. Second, to look carefully at the release process, consider whether it has the right balance between the goal of getting children to parents and other sponsors as quickly as is safe without cutting safeguards that are important to child safety. Third, the need to expand license capacity to reduce the need to ever rely on emergency intake sites to this extent in the future. And then fourth, and the focus of the rest of today's discussion, the need to significantly strengthen services after children are released to parents and other sponsors. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mark. That really helps us to understand some of the context and
the detailed caveats that you know are embedded in the situation that we're we're hearing about. And the data certainly tells the numbers as well as the challenges and path forward that you outlined. Stephanie, turning to you now, even during these historic historically high numbers, we know that relatively speaking, children spend less time in federal custody than they do in local communities after release from federal custody. What can you tell us about the services available to children once they are in the U.S. local communities? And what findings or recommendations can you share from your research? Thank you, Asse. So today I'll be unpacking what post-release services currently look like for unaccompanied children, why these services should be strengthened, and what that could look like based on our findings. So I'll be highlighting some of our findings and recommendations from my report, but I encourage you all to read the report to have a more comprehensive picture of post-release services. So as unaccompanied children integrate in the United States, they often face challenges, some including interrupted learning, not speaking English or Spanish, and trauma developed either in their home country, journey to the US, or both. Some children and sponsors may also face tension and conflict as they adjust to a new home life together. So as Mark mentioned, the federal government provides a limited set of services to unaccompanied children after they're released from federal custody. So in general, all unaccompanied children receive a 30-day safety and well-being follow-up call from ORR, and all children and sponsors have access to a hotline where they can obtain referrals to community resources. If a child and sponsor can't be reached for the follow-up call, no further steps are taken after repeated efforts to call them. As for the hotline, there's no publicly available data that shows how often this number of inquiries are made. Only a minority of qualifying children receive OR-funded legal services or post-release services. So about 20 to 40% of children receive post-release services in most years. And as for legal services, there's no publicly available data on the number of children receiving it. Additionally, the eligibility requirements for receiving legal services keeps changing year after year. So overall, the only federally funded assistance a child is guaranteed is a 30-day follow-up call. And that call is likely the last time that child will be in touch with an OR-funded care provider or any OR-funded service. Many recently arrived children and their sponsors are essentially left responsible to navigate on their own the school registration, the US education system, the immigration system and its courts, and the healthcare system. So because federally funded follow-up services are minimal, and some are allocated only for certain children, community-based organizations across the country, including those not funded by federal or local governments, have been seeking to address the gap in post-release services for unaccompanied children. They've been responding to the needs by providing physical and mental health services, case management, legal services, family reunification support, school and after-school programming, and other supports. So to better understand the significant needs of unaccompanied children from the perspective of service providers in the field, we interviewed 31 nonprofit providers across 16 states and Washington, DC, and also co-organized roundtable discussions with UNICEF. We learned from immigration attorneys, doctors, case management workers, school staff, mental health professionals, and other youth care professionals and captured their insights in the findings section of our report. So here in the slides are some highlights from what we've learned. We have 10 findings in our report, but for the sake of time, I'll talk about three. So first, we learned repeatedly that access to legal services is crucial for a child's case, 
and for the child to be connected to other services. Children of all ages are required to follow through with immigration proceedings after their release from ORR and often find it challenging since there are language barriers and immigration law is complex. Legal representation not only helps the child navigate the legal process and increase the likelihood of the child receiving legal status, but it also provides them an advocate mindful of their unique vulnerabilities, such as healing from trauma. Access to legal services also often means access to other essential services and supports, such as school enrollment, healthcare, mental health services, and food and housing, since providers often administer in-house or external referrals. So secondly, we also heard about how schools have become service hubs to link unaccompanied children to community resources and services. Some schools have partnered with community organizations to offer needed services to children while at school, such as case management and medical and mental health services. These on-site school services have been particularly beneficial for unaccompanied children who haven't secured immigration relief and they may be ineligible for public health insurance. So as a reminder, only six states and the District of Columbia offer health insurance coverage for children, regardless of their immigration status. And lastly, we heard about and also recommend the need to strengthen or funded post-release services and improve the coordination and communication along the full continuum of services. That is among shelter staff or funded post-release service providers and other community providers. We found that in a number of communities in response to the limited availability of federally funded case management, some service providers, particularly legal service providers and after school programs have incorporated a case management into their service model. So given these findings, we've offered recommendations with the hope that post-release services can be strengthened, enhanced and expanded for all children, including those residing in more rural and remote areas. Among the, our recommendations are that all children receive federally funded post-release case management and legal services. Children should also receive additional follow-up when they can't be reached in a 30-day call. There should also be case consultations between shelter staff and post-release service providers to strengthen that continuity of care. And lastly, states, localities, and philanthropic organizations should identify service gaps and seek to provide funding to fill those gaps while also developing in the meantime teleservices to reach children in areas where services are limited. So in summary, there is a clear need and desire to strengthen post-release community services for unaccompanied children, particularly now with additional pandemic-related challenges. Continued improvement and expansion of post-release services is urgently needed for the benefit of unaccompanied children, service providers, our education, healthcare systems, and our local communities. So with that, I'll turn it back over to USA. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you for shedding some light on uh, the situation, particularly, I get this question a lot, what happens to unaccompanied children after they're released from federal custody? And from your remarks, it sounds like a very small fraction get post-release services or legal services. And so it's really shedding light on the important role that other organizations uh, and other sectors can play. Thank you, Stephanie. With the framing that Mark and Stephanie provided, we'll begin our panel presentation, starting with Matt Haygood, who is the Director of Children's Services at the US Committee for Refugees and Immigrants. Matt is responsible for USCRI's home study and post-release services programs for unaccompanied children. 
He's also a licensed clinical social worker who's been working with refugee and immigrant youth for more than 15 years, particularly in the areas of behavioral health, youth development, and child welfare. A fun fact about Matt, he also served as a Peace Corps volunteer in the Dominican Republic. Matt, to kick us off with this panel, could you share more information about federally funded post-release services and any lessons learned or recommendations you might have? Sure. So thank you all very much for attending today. I'm very excited to talk about this. And as said earlier, it's a very timely issue to be discussing. Uh, USCRI has been providing home study and post-release services as a grantee under the Office of Refugee Resettlement since 2011. So what are exactly home study and post-release services? Um, home studies are First, those are provided to children who are still in OR custody and identified as the most vulnerable. So typically between five and 7% of kids receive a home study every year. And these are you know, kids who are survivors of trafficking, victims of abuse and neglect, they have a disability, their safety concerns in their home. And so what we're doing is we're going out and interviewing the child, interviewing the prospective sponsor, we're visiting the home where they may be going, interviewing household members, looking at all of their background and history and needs, and then finally making a recommendation about, yes, this kid should be released or no, they should not, and here's why. And one of the big pieces of that is really important after their release is we're also doing a lot of preparation and education and training for the sponsor about what are their local resources? What's the process for school enrollment? What are the needs of this kid that you may or may not be aware of that you need to start equipping yourself to be able to help them integrate into their new community? So it's really setting the framework and, and planting the seeds of a positive integration once they're released from custody. Now, post-release services, Again, as Stephanie said, it's about 20% of kids get post-release services, and these are also you know, vulnerable factors that they might have behavioral health needs, medical needs, they may be going to someone who's not a family member, and essentially what we're doing is providing follow-up case management services to, to make sure that they have access to the resources that they need and that they're prepared to meet all the challenges that might face them in the days ahead. Um, you can go to the next slide, please. So for USCRI and most providers, the way this looks is post-release services is a home visitation model. We don't see any clients in an office. We're going into the home. And I always like to say that it's a mix of child welfare, uh, cultural orientation, and case management, and that we're doing a lot of education to families about how do you enroll a kid in school, where the closest clinics or you know, behavioral health treatment facilities that you might be able to access, what is your immigration court process going to look like, and we're helping them get connected with those services if they need them. And additionally, we're also talking about uh, what they need to do when services are no longer um, being provided to them so that they can be compliant with their immigration court proceedings and how they can get access to legal services as well. So some parents have been here for a while or sponsors have been here for a while, so they're familiar with how things operate here and some may be more recently arrived. So we're doing a lot of education about this is what school looks like here in the US. This is what your immigration court proceedings will require of you and what your rights and responsibilities are so that they are equipped to both help support the kid who's recently arrived to their home, but then also be able to confront issues that are coming down the road later in life. Um, it, it, we're really trying to build upon their strengths. And part of the, the thing is that because most of them are only getting services for 90 days, we're really that parachute for when they land. And then 
making sure that they have all the tools they need to succeed moving forward. But most of the cases we're not working with long-term to, to help support them further down the road. Next slide, please. So one of the things that we've learned doing this for a while now is that there is a significant honeymoon period of where things seem okay. They're just getting their feet on the ground. They're learning what's next for them. They're getting accustomed to their new community. And then later on, the long-term needs start to emerge. So there might be conflict now between the child and the sponsor. There might be getting used to or now processing the loss of their family, their home country, their culture. Um, they might be beginning to deal with the trauma that they've experienced in home country or along the way. And so the needs really extend beyond 90 days. And most of the time, as we're closing a lot of our cases, we're starting to see some of this, these issues start to crop up and there really needs to be more long going support for those of the kids that need it. Uh, in a lot of communities, there are plenty of resources and it's easy to connect and doing the case manage management is much simpler. However, in, in a lot of locations, resources are non-existent and they're not really accessible. If I live in rural Louisiana and there are no attorneys in the area or no Spanish speaking clinicians, it's not realistic that I'm going to drive hundreds of miles to be able to access those services, especially if I'm living in a home with not a lot of financial resources. It's just something that if it's not there in the community, I'm not going to be able to access it. Uh, in general, and I say the collective we, we're not really addressing the mental health and legal needs of these children. Yes, there are some kids who get legal services after they're released. They're very few and far between. Most people have to get a long wait list for pro bono uh, representation, or they have to pay for it out of pocket. And similarly, from a cultural standpoint, one-on-one -on -one counseling, you know, talk therapy does not necessarily make sense or is really competent in most of these circumstances. And so not only are there not even enough providers to do that, but that's not even the best way of going, addressing some of the mental health needs of not just the kids, but the sponsors and families who also have to deal with their own issues of their migration, potential trauma that they've experienced and how we can help support them. So there needs to be more done in that area. Uh, similarly, because it's, you know, been a Relatively speaking, you know, in the last 10 years, we've seen these large numbers. It's not very well researched, and there's not a lot of evidence to support evidence-based practices for working with these kids and their families. There's a lot borrowed from child welfare, from immigration practice, from other case management, but specifically to unaccompanied kids and their transition into the U.S. of what works best with them. There's not a lot of research, and we need to do more and more I would say consistent data gathering across other grantees and other service providers to figure out what is the best way to help support these kids uh, transition into their new lives. Uh, we also see that when, you know, right now there's over 5,000 kids who have been released from our custody and they're waiting to get post-release services, they are eligible. And we have seen over the years that the outcomes for these kids are worse the longer that um, they go without being connected to with somebody to help support them. So, if a sponsor doesn't know how to enroll a child in school, we can fix that really quickly. But if we don't start working with someone six until six months after they've been released, that may be the time that the school enrollment process start because they didn't know they were legally supposed to have the kid in school and they didn't know how to navigate that process. And so having the providers available immediately upon release is extremely important to help them get off on the right foot and make sure to address those needs before they become more complicated. Um, and overwhelmingly, we, we do quality assurance calls and uh, with our, our sponsors and with and the kids we serve. Everyone really appreciates the services. They wish they had them for longer and they wish more uh, individuals had them as well. And so it's something that it's very positive among the clients that we serve and we feel like it's something that, that we should be provided to more people. 
So with the surge of this past year, you know, as I said, there's a wait list of over 5,000 children waiting to get services. There's just not enough providers to really meet the need. And this has been complicated by COVID both and hiring has been difficult for all providers, um, you know, how to navigate going into the home and keeping staff and families safe. Um, and also all of the interruptions that's caused with server service providers across the country. But they're, they're, they're just, we haven't been able to meet the need in any year, this would be difficult with the number of children, but particularly more so because of the complications with COVID. We have seen in some ways what Mark was mentioning where the purpose of when a child is in a shelter is the safe and timely release to a caring sponsor. We have seen timeliness prioritized over safety and that has had complications after the fact for when kids are in the community. And as us as providers, when we're going into home, we may have almost no information or very little assessment has been done prior to the release. So a lot of their needs were not identified while in care. And then we're finding out about it after release. So we're having to do a lot of scrambling, preparing and assessing uh, to help make, meet the needs of the kids and families where typically we know what we're getting as we get the referral and we start working with the family. And unfortunately, you know, as Mark also mentioned, there's been lots of negative reports about what's happened in some of the emergency intake sites. And we've seen some of the trauma just experienced by kids and even sponsors about how their frustrations and the, that how their case was managed and the conditions within the facilities and, you know, the sort of their been their welcome here into the country and then, ha then having to deal with the anxiety of not knowing what's happening to them or their case, are they going to be unified and that's impacting them after they've been released and we're sort of the first provider to come hear them and, and, and start to help them process what they've experienced. And so those have been some of the complications that have happened over this year. And so uh, I guess to close out, if we had some recommendations, uh, next slide, please. Uh, as Stephanie said, we think everybody should get post-release services. Um, I'm happy to hear that it seems that this administration is going in that direction, has interest in doing so. Not every kid needs the same level or intensity of services. So having a variety of what that might look like in duration as well is something that's really imp important. And as I mentioned, because there's not uh, legal services or medical services or mental health services in some rural communities, and it's not really feasible to set up a Spanish speaking clinic in a rural, very rural place that doesn't have a lot of uh, Spanish speaking individuals live there, we really think that the federal government should fund these direct services using their existing post-release service network to be able to access and support families um, wherever they might be. Because there are some com communities that have those supports in place already, but when it's not available, it can really impact the well-being of the child moving down the road. And lastly, um, again, echoing some of what Stephanie said, building the capacity of local governments. These kids are going into school. You know, the child welfare system is working with them in some circumstances. And, over the years doing this, I'm just amazed with how much this is in the news of having to explain who these kids are, where they're coming from, what their status is, what their circumstances are, and how um, a school or a child welfare worker or a clinic can best support them. And so I think there needs to be significant funding on the federal level to help build up the capacity of local governments and school systems so that it takes some of the burden off of the shelter system that is dealing with most of this right now. So thank you all very much. Thank you, Matt, for that very practical application of, of lessons learned and recommendations. And clearly from your remarks, it's obvious to me that you know, your program has the best interests of children at heart as you look at the services that you offer. 
Uh, I also noted that there are some questions coming in from the audience, and I'm very grateful to see those. Please keep them coming. One of the questions asked about what can we do now? How can we advocate for unaccompanied children? And perhaps the lessons learned and recommendations that Matt shared will point uh, towards certain directions with regard to that question. Thank you again, Matt. Uh, and you know, as we've been talking about so far, and, and generally when we talk about post-release services, we often think of federally funded programs like the one that, that Matt described including a network of local partners, and we'll hear from, from one later on. But today, we're fortunate to add a very important perspective into the mix, and that is the perspective of the state. Our second panelist is Marcela Ruiz, who is the Director of the Office of Equity in the California Department of Social Services, where she works with different offices and teams related to tribal affairs, foster care, immigrant integration, civil rights, equal employment opportunity, language services, and accessibility to improve access and outcomes for historically excluded populations. Before her current role, Marcella served as chief of the Immigration and Refugee Programs Branch and oversaw California's Refugee Programs Bureau, as well as the Trafficking and Crime Victims Assistance Program. She also served as the deputy director at California Rural Legal Assistance and worked as a union organizer, including director of organizing at the New York Hotel Trades Council. Marcella, a question for you. What kinds of services and supports are available to unaccompanied children through the state of California? Uh, so thank you very much, Assay, for that introduction. And um, just want to also thank MPI for hosting this event and teeing up this truly important conversation and to my co-panelists, right, for, for the work that you do and for sharing from your experience here with us today so that we can strengthen systems and improve outcomes. Um, as I, I do want to share with you the work that is done in California, as Essay mentioned, in my current capacity, I have the honor of working with the Immigrant Integration Branch within the California Department of Social Services, who lead the programs for unaccompanied children in, in California. A quick note um, is that in California, we refer to unaccompanied children as unaccompanied and documented minors or UUMs. So if I use that term, please note that is interchangeable and all the programs I'll be discussing here today relate to unaccompanied children. If we could go to the next slide. So um, I would like to share an overview of the post-release services that we have developed in the state for unaccompanied children uh, based on our lessons learned over the past six years. But I would also first like to provide you with some context in which these programs are, are developing. So California receives one of the largest shares of unaccompanied children, typically only second to, uh, to Texas, but this year actually 
especially Florida, surpassing California in the number of children who are being placed in the state. Um, according to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, over 35,000 unaccompanied children have been placed in California since federal fiscal year 2015, when we saw uh, the significant spike in the number of arrivals of unaccompanied children to the United States. In California, as is probably true in many other states, uh, children are placed in both urban and rural communities. So we have children placed in cities as large as Los Angeles, which has a population of close to 4 million, and uh, other large cities like Oakland, and also in smaller agricultural communities in California's uh, Central Valley. And most of the children arriving to California, again, like is true across the nation, are from the Northern Triangle, with a majority from Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, and many children coming from indigenous families. I, I wanted to lift this up to, to illustrate um, the vast regions that our programs and providers cover, as well as the varied needs and opportunities in which the programs are being developed. Um, some programs operate in resource-rich communities with an acute awareness of the specific needs of unaccompanied children, and others are newly building programs in regions with limited community-based infrastructure while trying to promote cultural sensitivity or awareness within the established systems. Um, our investment in, in California began six years ago, focused on the legal services programs. But over the past six years, those programs have evolved significantly. And we are now framing our program development through an immigrant integration lens that's attempting to acknowledge that we serve a whole child and that whole child fits into a family structure and also a broader system of educational, social, and safety net services. So the key needs that we have identified for um, unaccompanied children and the core areas of investment are around, continue to be around immigration status, education, workforce as we know many of the youth arrive uh, closer to their 18th birthday and we want to ensure that we're also addressing the transition to workforce for for some of those youth hopefully after they they uh, graduate from high school um, and social emotional support and family integration the crux of these programs has been investing investing resources that builds capacity both of the existing systems to serve the populations um, that they may not be very aware of um, and to expand capacity and to build infrastructure throughout the state to be able to to serve the the, the populations. Um, I'll mention that this evolution in our programs and in our framework has been uh, very much informed, um, obviously, by the needs of the children and youth, but also by the experience, expertise, and recommendations of providers, namely the community-based organizations and school districts that we partner with to deliver the services. Next slide, please. 
So um, these are the three main program areas that the state of California has been funding over the last three years. We are funding a legal services program for unaccompanied children, the California Newcomer Education and Wellbeing Program, or CalNew, and Opportunities for Youth, which is our, our newest program. And I'll provide a little bit more detail in a minute. What I want to lift up about these programs programs is that where possible, we have tried to model after or align with existing federal, state, or local programs for unaccompanied children. We looked at successful practices and models emerging from the federal legal services programs, the refugee programs like the refugee school grant, as well as the philanthropically supported local efforts in school districts. Um, the programs mainly revolve around school district and nonprofit legal services providers because we have found that school systems and the legal services sector are best positioned to provide a continuity of service from the federal system and to identify uh, the children and in community and connect them with with services. Um, and finally, the programs have also all evolved to intentionally include technical assistance and learning collaboratives to build capacity and relationships across systems and organizations, and also to include an evaluation component to help refine our understanding of what successful practices look like. Um, I am uh, very fortunate to be able to share that uh, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom just signed our budget this year that will increase uh, uh, the funding available for all three of these programs. Um, next slide, please. Oh, sorry, one quick note. I wanted to mention that the young man featured in this, this photo, this photo is from uh, a newspaper from uh, the Central Valley of California. He arrived as an unaccompanied, uh, unaccompanied child and unaccompanied youth. And uh, he is now in his, uh, in his first year of, of college and hopes to become a doctor. Um, next slide, please. So uh, here I, uh, we provide an, an overview of the level of investment across the program areas as well as the number of providers we work with and the services that, that are offered. Um, uh, a, a few quick notes. Again, we started off with the investment in, in legal services program. That's been a $3 million ongoing investment since uh, uh, 2014 and has been increased over, over time. And we currently fund about 20 providers throughout the state who are connected with the Vera Institute of Justice Network funded through the federal government. So again, just to illustrate where we have tried to align um, services across uh, across different systems. The, Cal, the CalNew program and the OFY both fund um, school districts and community-based organizations to provide academic support, family integration, um, case management, as well as navigation services to connect children, youth, and families with existing systems of, of support in, in the state of California. 
And then finally, we are this year going to be creating a state unaccompanied minor uh, coordinator, very much modeled after the state refugee coordinator in recognition that there is a continuum of services that needs to be connected for the child or the youth to be able to receive all of the all of the services that they need. So this is a this is a development that we are very very excited about and, and would love to have uh, partners across the country to be able to connect with and build those those learning collaboratives that I mentioned with earlier. Um, next slide. Finally, I'm sharing with you just a few pictures from various events hosted through school districts uh, funded through the CalNEW program. Um, I, in closing, I, I would like to thank the many, many partners across the state, the legal services providers, the school districts, the community-based organizations, as well as the youth and the families who support the services in California, who help, have helped us learn and, and continue to evolve our program areas to refine them and build a community of practice that will improve the outcomes for, for youth. Thank you so much, Marcella. I mean, what exciting, you know, cutting edge innovations around building capacity for supporting and serving unaccompanied children in California. And I hope that, you know, we have almost 500 people on the call today. Any other state partners who work in offices of equity or offices of new Americans uh, who are listening might uh, take some tips from the work that you have done. And thank you also for sharing the story of the young man who uh, is now pursuing a doctoral degree. Our final panelist is Kate Reen, the Director of Youth Initiatives at the Northern Virginia Family Services, which provides mental health, therapeutic management, and group services to youth exposed to violence, uh, youth at risk of gang involvement, and recently immigrated youth reunifying with family here in the US. Prior to coming to Northern Virginia Family Services, Kate worked in inter-country inter adoption, providing education to prospective adoptive parents and managing programs for adoptions from Eastern Europe. I should also note that Kate is one of the service providers we interviewed as part of our research. Kate, we are grateful for your sharing your expertise then and uh, even now as a panelist. Would you describe for us, Kate, the services available to unaccompanied children through your organization? And again, any lessons learned or recommendations that might benefit the field? Yes, thanks, Essa. I appreciate that. Yes, so our Northern Virginia Family Service is a private nonprofit, and we really are a local agency in that we only work in, it's about five counties, uh, generally in Northern Virginia, just outside of DC. And so our youth initiatives programs, while they were not initially only designed to serve unaccompanied children, what we have found is that that is a large portion of who we are serving based on their need. Um, so the programs that we have within our youth initiatives programs is our family reunification program. Um, and really that came out of, I should have started with our other programs of, of seeing a need within the community of kids who were um, unaccompanied children, who were reunifying with their family, and there weren't services available for them in the community. If they didn't receive 
post-release, if it was a year later and the school social worker was saying this family, this youth is really struggling as they try to reunify, they had nowhere to send them. Um, and so that's where, you know, in partnership with one of our local counties, Fairfax County was able to um, fund us to be able to meet that need um, because it came out of our work with them on our violence prevention intervention program where we're doing this trauma mental health and working with kids exposed to violence. Uh, working specifically with youth who don't have access to other resources. Uh, and that is a lot of our recently immigrated youth who don't have the financial means, who may not be eligible for insurance. Um, and so needing a much more flexible model to be able to serve them. Um, we also have a gang prevention program and working with youth at risk of gangs. Um, and in our local community, again, a lot of who are the youth that are being referred for that are these recently immigrated youth based on them being vulnerable and being targeted for recruitment. Um, and we see that reunification piece as a prime vulnerability because we know that if they don't have the connection at home um, and the support and the relationship with their family, that that is certainly a risk factor for many different things. Um, and so we have this whole spectrum within our youth initiatives programs um, and the majority of the youth that we have served are recently immigrated youth, typically from Central America. Um, and over the last year in the pandemic, our numbers are a little lower than normal, but we had about 750 youth that we served locally through just these, this set of programs. Um, but I also wanted to mention as we look at the next slide um, of you know, our agency in general, we are really a big proponent of kind of integrated services and looking at the whole needs because what we know is that for these youth and for their families it's not just those initial needs and it's not just based on that reunification and based on them arriving in the community the families have a whole variety of needs and complex needs um, and so we have these other programs that we are typically connecting our families and our youth with as well um, such as our healthy families program which works with new mothers and new parents in general um, we do immigration legal services, we have health access for our kids who aren't eligible for Medicaid or for insurance to be able to get access to health care. Um, our Hunger Resource Center during COVID, we have connected a lot of our families to food um, and have even been able to deliver food to some of our families who weren't able by transportation to get different places, um, as well as by having COVID and not being able to leave the house and yet needing to have food available to them. Uh, and then COVID crisis case management as well. Um, and I would say, you know, an example I'll give is a family that we are working with now, where it's a youth who was an unaccompanied child. And while he had post-release services, that was really just ending as we got involved um, with the Trafficking Victim Assistance Program. And this family was very much affected by COVID, um, both on a financial level, as well as on an emotional and health level. Um, and so we had our, case manager available. And then we also added a gang prevention case manager because the youth had gang trafficking in his history that he had been a victim of. And so adding that therapeutic level of work. Um, but then he also had greater needs around his trauma mental health. And so through our programs, we added a mental health therapist, um, as well as with our COVID crisis case management, helping the family access rental assistance and access food. And so that family and working with just our agency and mostly within my team, of being able to have kind of that wraparound services to have their basic needs met as well as their therapeutic needs met and working with both the youth as well as with the guardians that were um, caring for this child. And so that's kind of our model is really looking at how do we support the whole family um, in who is serving this youth. Um, so as 
our youth initiatives programs, we kind of have three components that we do in working with unaccompanied children. Uh, and that's what is on the next slide. And really it's this individual services. So therapeutic case management and case management means a lot of different things to different people. Um, so we kind of define that therapeutic aspect of doing the basic case management of connecting to food resources, but also the therapeutic of talking about coping skills, talking about communication, um, helping families build relationships and get to know each other and build attachment. Um, and then we also do trauma-informed home visiting mental health services. So it's clinical services, but in a home visiting model. Um, we have a lot of group services. So we work with schools quite a lot on doing psychoeducation groups, um, things like Know Your Rights in our workshops, as well as kind of US norms of as you're new to the country, what do you need to know coming into school and coming into the country, um, as well as coping skills. And some of it is really tailoring it to the needs of these youth and their communities. Um, and so in working with one of our local schools, and this is our next aspect of just really, our goal is how do we help the whole system and the whole community to also be more responsive to these youth, given the lessons we've learned, given the knowledge that we have. Um, and so, you know, over the last couple of years, we've done a lot of training with some of our school staff and working with a specific group of English language learner teachers at a high school on trauma and on reunification, where these kids are coming from, those teachers then identified what they were seeing in their classroom and recognizing that a lot of it was trauma symptoms. Uh, and so then what we did is we developed a workshop for the youth around, we called it more stress management and using more culturally appropriate language, but what are some basic skills for those youth and how do they manage their trauma symptoms? And then looking at also referring those youth to the individual mental health services that they might need. Um, so it's really looking at what is that spectrum of services and how do we adapt it to the needs that those youth have. Um, and some of our learning has come, you know, we, we were a post-release service provider for a long time, um, but we also, we saw kind of that so many of the youth coming to our gang prevention program, coming to our mental health services, they had reunified with their family maybe a year ago, maybe three years ago, and they hadn't received support and they hadn't received services on the front end. And now things had really deteriorated. And now they, we were seeing a lot of behavioral issues, child welfare involvement, juvenile justice involvement. And so with our family reunification program and developing these groups and workshops, it was also looking at how do we intervene sooner so that they're not coming to us once they've been victimized, once the family is really struggling. Um, and so looking at doing that preventive and really starting from the beginning um, and what we didn't know, and I think about for myself, what I didn't know when I first started working with these youth in 2008, and I knew child welfare, but I was not familiar with any of these dynamics. And so how do we kind of help all the other service providers in our local area learn what they need to know to take the, the skills and the knowledge they have and apply them to be able to support these particular youth? Um, so looking at kind of a, a couple things that as we think about our programs that we would recommend for anyone working with these youth. Um, and some of that is around really looking at who, who are these families and who are these youth. Um, and you know, sometimes with post-release services, my impression has been that they are, have in the past when they were designed, it almost feels like they were designed for a kid coming to their US citizen aunt who just needed a couple flyers on how do you connect with the legal services because they've never worked with an immigration attorney before, how do you enroll a kid to school, and off they go and they would be great. That is not the demographic and the profile of the families that we're working with. 
Um, and so really for us, as we are designing our services locally, it's looking at who are these families and what do they need? For many of our parents and sponsors, they have limited English language, they may have limited literacy in Spanish, um, and they're not always familiar with US systems or with the resources in the community. And so there is a cultural navigation piece, and sometimes that means accompanying folks to services. Sometimes that means calling with them, but being able to adjust that based on that individual's need. Um, and then also that services are accessible and that's broad, right? We have in the language of a lot of our team, all of them are bilingual English, Spanish, but some of them are also bicultural uh, because we know that it is different if I walk into that family's home versus if Gustavo walks into that home who is a Salvadoran immigrant himself um, and kind of how those families react and somebody who also understands their background and where they're coming from. Uh, and I think what I can't undersell is the idea of trauma-informed um, and just the impact of trauma for both these youth as well as for many of the parents and how do we design services around that uh, and looking at that continuum. And I think the timing piece is a big one of so many of like for us, the influx is gonna come over this next year because as Matt said earlier, there is that honeymoon phase and it's really as things don't go well that then we, we have seen this historically over the years, whenever there's an influx at the border, it's about six to 12 months and then we get the influx when things haven't, they haven't received preventive services, things haven't gone well initially um, and they need more intensity oftentimes. You know, we do once a week with all of our youth. That is a lot more than most post-release service providers are able to provide given the constraints they have. And so looking at what do these families need in order to really best meet their needs based on where they're coming from and how to, who are all the players that need to be at the table as well. Um, so I'll wrap up with that. There's obviously so much more that could be said about kind of helping to serve these families and these youth. And that's just a little bit about what we're doing in Northern Virginia to do that. Thank you so much, Kate. And your remarks remind me of the saying, an ounce of prevention is for better for a pound of cure. And you know, you make a really good case for front-loading services while building a continuum of services that can help youth who've been here for a year or more in local communities. Please join me in giving a virtual round of applause to all of our speakers, the panelists and the two before. We'll have about uh, 10 minutes for Q&A. We'll begin with a question for Matt. Matt, could you go into more detail about what type of capacity is needed in local governments to assist unaccompanied children? This is a question from one of the call participants. And they're also wondering if more staff or more staff of a certain demographic or more staff with certain types of um, work histories would be most impactful. What are your thoughts, Matt? Yeah, I think um, some of it is staff related. A big piece of it is, you know, depending on the communities um, and, and some people have already spoken to this already, but more education and training about who the kids are and who the families are and what are their needs, because there's, like I said, there's frequently confusion that, oh, they may not be eligible for services or we can't enroll them in school because of X, Y, Z reasons. And, and they, they're not sure what to do necessarily with, you know, an unaccompanied child that maybe if they're not used to it previously. So I do think some of it is staff, especially having bilingual staff to be able to help support them and having a better understanding of 
when an unaccompanied child comes through the system and is, you know, still in immigration proceedings, what what is the process for them to integrate into community? What are they going to be eligible for? And what are the needs that they're going to have? And so I do think, and again, some school systems are very well set up and very well accustomed to it. And some of them need a lot of education and support about how they can continue to uh, support kids as they're going through school. But, and then also all the many other needs that these families have um, that as as long as you know a lot of these kids don't have immigration hearings for years and so they're going to be here for a while and so being able to to work with them and, and address them and, and make sure that their all their needs are being met is is something that takes staff takes money takes takes resources that they can have access to that in a lot of places they just are not eligible for or don't have access to absolutely thank you for that matt i mean building capacity can mean a lot of different things in local government Kate, turning to you, one participant asks, since schools seem to be a huge connector, how can schools and PRS services be better connected? And I'm hoping, Kate, that you can borrow from your PRS experience in the past, but also talk about from your current role as uh, providing services later in, in the process for children. Uh, so I think, yeah, schools are a great connector because most of our kids should be at schools. Um, I think it's if PRS folks, some of it is them making themselves known, but I would say it's also on the school side, it's having everyone educated on who these kids are and what their needs are, uh, because we see a diversity of that. And what we sometimes see is that the ELLs teachers are very understanding of it. The social workers typically have some good understanding, but then, you know, the registrars in our local county, I think now they have a lot of understanding, but not always historically. And so school systems looking at does everyone need to be trained on these kids and what their needs are versus just the ELL staff. Um, I think for PRS providers, it's really engaging proactively um, to inform and set up a meeting and connect the family is a big part of it. Um, that there is that ongoing, that it's not just the PRS provider who's connected, but it's also being that bridge between the parent to get them engaged with the school because PRS is limited. And so how do they set up that support for the parent within the school system and connecting to the right people and explaining who those people are? Fantastic, thank you, Kate. Uh, we have a question about California. So Marcella, I'll, I'll turn to you. One participant asks, how do PRS case managers that have clients in California connect with these services to assist our minors? For example, CalNew, would the school district know about this program? So the, the school district should be uh, uh, aware of the programs right now. The, the CalNew is exists in in, uh, in twelve school districts, so it's uh, it's not available across all of the school districts in in California. I think that um, I'll just take a minute to take a step back and and to address. I think what continues to be a gap is that connection point, right, between sort of the federal system and the federally supported services 
services and the California supported services. And I think that is the question of how do we create a system that is intentionally making the, the connection to the services that may be available on a statewide level or on a, um, on a regional level. And I think that has been, uh, as lifted up in the MPI report, one of the, one of the, one of the struggles and one of the opportunities that we have to, to improve the systems is information sharing and data sharing so that we can have a more streamlined uh, connection point for the, for the youth. As noted, there's, there's uh, sometimes there's distance between the locally funded, the state funded, and the federally funded services. But again, there seems to be a real opportunity to explore how we can streamline those, those connection points through, through better coordination. Thank you very much, Marcella. That's a wealth of information and good framing for us to consider. We have another question from a participant and Matt, I'll direct this to you. Uh, the question is, how would a person find out how the ORR or state-based services can be contacted to find out where a sponsor or child can be helped? So it's service navigation we're talking about here. And this individual works in a family-based immigration service program in rural area of Ohio. I don't know if USCRI has any programs there, but could you share your initial thoughts around that? Sure. So in, in hearing what other, and seeing some of the other questions in there as well, that I, I think an, a problem, honestly, with the federally funded post-release services is that we only get referrals from the Office of Refugee Resettlement. So if you as a service provider are identify a child who is unaccompanied, they've been released to a sponsor, they have significant needs, there is no mechanism for you to then connect them with a post-release service provider that might have more information about how to navigate their case and work with them. Um, it only comes through ORR. So I think that in itself honestly creates a disconnect between a lot of the local service providers because they don't have the mechanism to then connect and, and, and make sure those kids are getting additional support. Um, there is the ORR National Call Center. It's the hotline that you know, was mentioned earlier that Stephanie said that is for sponsors. That's for kids, but it's also for service providers to be able to um, ask about and find resources in a particular area that uh, might be available for a family um, you know that is you know varying in its usefulness i will say depending on the case and especially if you're just in an area where there's not a lot of resources to begin with but i think by having uh, all kids relieved post-release services it's not a question of oh how do i connect them this with a service it's more than finding out okay who is their post-release services worker and how we can collaborate because I know a lot of school districts and other people are saying, I don't know how to figure out who that, per who that person is. And oftentimes it's because they don't have one because 20% or less of kids are actually getting the services or they might actually be working with the child but they don't identify as a post-release service worker but maybe as a family support specialist or family reunification specialist or something like that, so. Excellent. Thank you, Matt. And, and I see additional questions relating to the same thing about how to make connections, especially when information, for example, about PRS providers uh, isn't necessarily publicly available. I, I want to thank you all again, Matt, Marcella, and Kate, for sharing your expertise, responding to these questions. 
Um, unfortunately, we're running out of time. We do have more questions, but we're not able to get to all of them. I wanna thank all of the participants for a rich discussion and also turn to um, Mark Greenberg now just for a moment to see if there are any closing thoughts um, that you'd like to offer before we wrap up with some important uh, logistical announcements. Sure. Um, th thanks very much, SA. Thanks, everybody. Um, thanks to the panelists for their work and their presentations today. Um, we wanted to highlight the, this work and the kinds of learnings um, that have come uh, from what the, what these colleagues and others are engaged with. Uh, I do want to emphasize that um, California is not typical of all states, um, and th that uh, you know that the kind of work that that Kate described is work um, uh, that is enormously valuable, enormously exciting, um, and there needs to be more support for it. Um, and in Matt's description of the very thoughtful uh, the experience that they have had through post-release services, it really underscores where the potentials are for greatly strengthening what the federal government does. Though in, uh, we think it's important to have the partnerships with state, local, and philanthropic efforts. A uh, second thing that I'd, I'd wanna emphasize is um, the context of this spring and summer that we talked about some before and the reliance on emergency intake sites and more rapid releases of children. And um, our view is that strengthening post-release services is a crucially important thing to do, that it is no substitute for a careful, thoughtful release process, but given the numbers of additional children coming into communities and often given the more limited services in custody, it really underscores the crucial importance. Uh, one last thing that I want to flag is some news from last week. The House Appropriations Committee has acted on appropriations for health and human services for next year. And notably, the committee calls for an increase of $88 million for the next fiscal year um, to raise the overall level to 300 million for the combination of legal services and post-release services and child advocates. So that's coming out of the House the committee, still has to go through the, the whole House, the Senate still needs to act, but a notable development from last week. And then my, my final point is just that a principal reason why we did this report is the recognition that oftentimes there is enormous attention to the conditions and circumstances of children when in OR custody. That's totally appropriate. Um, in many respects, there needs to be more attention. At the same time, after children are released from custody, they will be in communities for months, years, potentially for the rest of their lives. And so filling out attention to services after release, we think is not an add-on, but needs to be a fundamental part of the program. 
with that, um, back to you, Essay. Excellent. Thank you, um, Mark, for sharing the hopeful news about the Appropriations Committee and then the really sealing the comment there about an add-on and not a substitute or replacement. Uh, again, I want to remind everyone that there is a wealth of information in the recently released report and the commentaries. We encourage you to check those out on our website at migrationpolicy.org. You may also want to use the data tool on our website for information on the number of unaccompanied children in your particular county or state. That's all the way from 2014 to the present. And in the next slide, you'll see some other reminders that, uh, again, the audio for this webinar will be available. The slide deck will also be available. If there are any reporters on the call, please contact Michelle Middlestadt. And if you'd like to receive updates about MDI, MPI work like this webinar, please go to migrationpolicy.org backslash sign up to join our listserv. Thank you again to all of our speakers. Thank you to all of you for participating and for your ongoing work and support of unaccompanied children. With that, we'll conclude this webinar.